This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Hey, I think we'll um, start because we're all anxious to hear tonight's speaker. I'm delighted uh, for the second of our, uh, well, they're called Blair dialogues, but we've already passed beyond Blair, um, <laughs> possibly. Uh, for good as well as uh, as ill, um, we, we've uh, delighted here to welcome um, Glasgow's Regis Professor of uh, well, your Regis Chair of English Language and Literature. I have to get these, uh, yeah, these uh, um, titles exactly right, um, and he's currently the head of the uh, the new School of Critical Studies in Glasgow. Um, Nigel, I'm sure everyone here will know uh, from his books and his scholarly reputation as a, um, as a, a scholar and critic of, of empire, of Scottish literature, uh, of romantic poetry. Um, his most recent book uh, on Robert Burns uh, won the Saltire Society Prize uh, in, that was, in 2010 for the, uh, the best Scottish research book. And uh, Nigel has moved on from that uh, to become currently one of the editors of the uh, collected new Oxford uh, collected works of, of Burns' works. And um, he's been working specifically on the prose, which actually is going to be really fascinating for those of us uh, who uh, have an interest in Burns. Um, but going back a bit, uh, just to remind people, uh, Nigel's first book on Coleridge, uh, uh, The Politics of Imagination in Coleridge's Critical Thought, was published in 1988, and uh, then uh, one of the books um, by which he's become best known, um, his British writer, Romantic Writers and the East, Anxieties of Empire, uh, which was a pioneering study of the anxieties and instabilities of romantic representations of the Orient, um, before that became terrifically uh, popular uh, and fashionable. In fact, uh, Nigel's book was one of the things that made it terrifically popular and fashionable, I'd say. Um, he's also edited Coleridge's Biographia Literaria and um, another major book, uh, his Curiosity and the Aesthetics of Travel Writing, 1770 to 1840, which is a book which I know many of us have used in our uh, teaching and our own um, research. Uh, he's published many other important essays, collections of essays, uh, and I'm not going to take up his time by naming them all, but I, I might just... Um, uh, mentioned one of the more recent ones, uh, edited with Phil Connell, Romanticism and Popular Culture in Britain and Ireland, which is a CUP 2009 book, which again um, has got some very important essays including his own in it. Um, so Nigel's going to talk to us today about a different aspect of Regis Chairs, uh, specifically the 19th century or Victorian uh, Regis Chairs, in largely Glasgow, but a bit Edinburgh, and uh, he tells me he's going to rely on all of us to fill in the other bits of Edinburgh, <laughs> so um, we'll move on to discussion after hearing your paper. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak in this, in this series. And Yes, I do apologise for my, the limited um, material I have on David Masson, but I, I figured that uh, there'd be a great crowns for the in, of, uh, information here in Edinburgh. There is something rather navel-gazing about um, talking about Regis chairs, but uh, I think it's uh, it's important, and it's surprising how um, little work there is actually on the institutional history of not only of the Regis chair, but of actually of English studies, English of English literature, and English criticism in the UK in general. Um, my title is a bit. Um, I, I, I decided actually I, I played with this title uh, once narrower and wider, and it seemed like a strange description of a chair. 
uh, because it's actually, as I'll, I'll go on to explain what that, what that means, at once narrower and wider, uh, Professor John Nicholl and the Glasgow Regius Chair in English Language and Literature. Delivering his, can you hear me okay? Is the, is the mic all right? Yeah. Delivering his inaugural lecture as Glasgow's first Regius professor, professor of English Language and Literature on November the 17th, 1862, John Nicholl emphasized that he would have to, I quote, make a track for myself in a field where, in defect of a more direct example, I come into contact with a still wider competition. Nicholl perceived the scope of his appointment as being distinct from the pedagogic tradition inaugurated by the 1762 Edinburgh Regis Chair of Rhetoric and Belles Lettres, held by Dr. Hugh Blair, in which you've been, um, which effectively this series is intended to commemorate. Um, and interestingly, um, in 1862, John Nicholl says that the Edinburgh Rhetoric and Belles Lettres Chair, I quote, has continued to bear the same title in the hands of his successors. And I've been actually discussing this with Sue, but I mean, Robert Crawford claims that um, the title was changed to English Language and Literature um, in 1858 at the behest of William uh, Ayton, uh, who was the, the current incumbent in Edinburgh. Um, I find it quite surprising. I mean, communications between Glasgow and Edinburgh aren't always as good as they should be. Uh, it's surprising that four years later, the, the word, the name, the, the name change hasn't got as far as Glasgow, and that Nicholl doesn't. Nicholl still thinks it's called the chair, of, the Edinburgh chair of rhetoric and belles lettres. Blair and his followers had been principally concerned with the inculcation of a correct taste and command of rhetoric, where that term, in Ian Duncan's words, was understood to mean, I quote, the stylistic formation of polite discourse and the cultivation of sensibility in modern civil society. Although the term rhetoric seems easily to have modulated into criticism, partly due to Lord Kames's influential example in his, um, 18, his 1762 book, Elements of Criticism, the pedagogic tradition institutionalized in Blair's Edinburgh provided the template for the early development of English studies across 18th and 19th century Britain and North America. But marking the Glasgow chair's break with that tradition, and he's referring to 19th century English chairs at UCL and King's College London, uh, as well as Queen's College Belfast. John Nicholl observed that, I quote, the more recent institutions at London, Belfast, and we may now add Glasgow, profess to be at once narrower and wider, that's my title, at once narrower and wider in their scope, in their range. Narrower as they are definitively restricted to one language, i.e. English, Wider, because they are intended to be philological and historical, as well as critical in their aims. Now, despite his own Oxford connections, which I'll come back to in a minute, uh, Nicholl had nothing to say about Oxbridge, um, for the simple reason that Oxford's Merton Chair of English Language and Literature wasn't established until 1884, uh, perhaps to safeguard the university's strong philological tradition and its resistance to chatter about Shelley, which was the, you know, one of the, the reasons for not, not admitting, uh, uh, not having a chair of, of criticism. And of course, Cambridge, as Edward VII chair, uh, had to wait uh, even longer until 1911. It's important to note the precise title then of Nicholl's chair, English Language and Literature, underscored in his own account of its pedagogic remit. However, one of his former students, Professor William McCormack of St Andrews, later recalled that Nicholl's, quote, interest lay naturally more on the aesthetic than on the philological side. He conscientious, conscientiously gave his senior class a dozen or more lectures at the beginning of the session on the history of the English language, but his heart was evidently not in it, and he was as glad as his students to have them over and get, get to literature. In the latter, he aimed rather at giving a survey of a wide field and dwelling only upon the greater authors 
than at specialising with minuteness on a single period. Aesthetic criticism, philosophy and history, or put in other terms, a philosophically grounded literary history, clearly wins out here in Nichols' practice over German-derived comparative philology that had come to dominate mid-19th century university study um, of the humanities. And, of course, uh, Nichols had attended Max Muller's lectures in Oxford. In this sense, Nichols' own critical practice appears to have wandered a bit from the official remit of his chair with its stress on philology, on English language and literature. Um, It's interesting that now, um, well, it's all complicated because of restructuring, but the school that I'm currently um, head of uh, uh, combines separate, what were separate departments of English literature, English language, um, and Scottish literature, which was a much later um, um, uh, institution uh, in, in Glasgow. Nicol worked conscientiously for 27 years, delivering 160 lectures a year to two classes of over 300 students each at Glasgow, as well as pioneering extension lecturing all over the UK from Dundee to Penzance. His publications are indicative of his intellectual interests. In addition to a proliferation of sub-Tennysonian poetry and drama, Hannibal and the death of Themistocles and other poems, which is really, I think it's safe to say, it's never now read, um, He published monographs, um, one on the early history of Scottish poetry, 1871, English composition, a primer, 1879, Byron, 1880, Robert Burns, 1882, Francis Bacon, 1889, and Thomas Carlyle, 1892, as well as a pioneering study of American literature, published in 1882. His interest in contemporary educational debate was also manifest in his address Uh, on National Education of 1869 and Scotch University Reform of 1888. The latter published the year before he resigned his chair in frustration at the changes being wrought in the Scottish and English universities. Although he certainly put his back into his academic teaching and publishing, there's a sense that Nicol was a little uncomfortable in this new chair, maybe because it was both narrower and wider, not perhaps necessarily a comfortable chair to to sit in. in 1859, uh, before he, when he was still in Oxford, before he applied to um, Glasgow, he'd already applied to St Andrews uh, for the chair in logic and English literature, but the appointment went to John Veach. In 1864, just two years after his appointment to the Glasgow Regis, he stood for Glasgow's chair of logic and rhetoric, which is still called that, logic and rhetoric. In fact, it's being advertised at the moment. Uh, so if anyone's interested, uh, do feel like do come forward. Um, and this Glasgow's chair of logic and rhetoric had been vacated by his old teacher, Robert Buchanan. But he was pipped to the post a second time by John Beach, who uh, moved across from St Andrews. And, and uh, uh, I think they had a rather frosty relationship uh, and, uh, subsequently. In 1866, he had a go at Glasgow's chair of moral philosophy, but it went to his old friend, Edward Caird, subsequently Benjamin Jowett's successor as Master of Balliol. This suggests that the new English chair was perceived as being of lower status than the older established philosophy chairs, although Nicholl seems to have overcome his disappointment. According to his biographer, Professor William Knight of St Andrews, he addressed himself with renewed vigour to the work of the English literature chair. At least, that is, until his application two decades later in 1885 for Oxford's new Merton Chair of English. Again, he was unsuccessful, um, as the chair went to the German-trained philologist A.S. Napier. On one level, however, the Glaswegian Nicol and his father, John Pringle Nicol, had been Glasgow's professor of astronomy and was a close friend of Thomas de Quincey. On one level, he was very much the product of the 18th century Scottish uh, belles lettres tradition. 
Now, I'm aware this is debatable ground, and it'll be familiar to many people here, but it's customary to trace that tradition to Adam Smith, um, to Smith's lectures on rhetoric and belles lettres, which, as you will know, were first delivered publicly at Edinburgh in 1748 to 51, uh, and Smith uh, subsequently um, gave those lectures as part of the private course in the Curriculum of Logic and Moral Philosophy at Glasgow between 1751 and 63. Neil Rhodes suggests a possible earlier inauguration in the lectures of John Stevenson at Edinburgh University in the 1730s, but Stevenson's lectures do not survive, and in the event, apparently he was very opposed to the um, establishment of the, um, of the Chair of Rhetoric and Bell Lecture. When Adam Smith left for, for the Glasgow Chair of Logic, Lord Kames appointed Robert Watson as his successor. When Watson, in turn, left to assume the Chair of Logic, Rhetoric and Metaphysics at St Andrews, Hugh Blair succeeded him, and of course it was Blair who was appointed as the first Chair um, of Rhetoric and Bell Lecture here in 1762. So there's an extraordinary ramification here, I think, in these chairs in, in the, in the mid-18th century, um, developments in Edinburgh, Glasgow, and St Andrews, as well as in the other hotbed of the Scottish Enlightenment, Aberdeen. Um, and Joan Pittock reminds us that Reed, Campbell, Gerard, and Beattie, amongst others, deliberated questions of poetry, beauty, imitation, genius, metrical composition, and, of course, the standard of taste in these, in these same uh, uh, decades. In his 1983 sketch of the, of the history of English at Glasgow University, the only such study of which I'm aware, Philip Hobsbawm emphasises that despite Nicholls' formative experience at Oxford, and uh, like many other Glasgow graduates, he was a uh, Snell exhibitioner at Balliol College, um, and uh, later a college tutor at Balliol in the later 1850s, uh, and it was a, as I mentioned, he was a lifelong friend of Benjamin Jowett and other stalwarts of Victorian Oxford. But he was in Glasgow terms part of an apostolic succession. As a first-year student at Glasgow, Nicol had sat at the feet of Robert Buchanan, who in turn was taught by George Jardine, who was taught by Adam Smith, who was taught by the never-to-be-forgotten Francis Hutcheson. So there really is a line of succession there, I think. By um, contrast, Nicol is succeeded in the Glasgow Regius by, um, by, in 1889 by A.C. Bradley, and then by Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, both Englishmen who'd come to Glasgow uh, via Liverpool, and both Bradley and Raleigh were, went on to um, hold distinguished chairs at Oxford. Uh, they did much more to anglicise the uh, Glasgow curriculum than Nicol had done. So in one sense, I think there is a case to be made for Nicol as the last of the old Scots professoriate. Um, there, there are changes, and I'll be coming to those changes, but there, are, there, is, a, there is a line of tradition there. As Nicol recollected near the end of his life, the love of letters which he had imbibed from Buchanan around 1850 was delivered in the logic class, quote, at a time when English literature, this is, this is uh, Nicol's own account, at a time when English literature as a distinct study was recognised in Scotland only at Edinburgh University. Um, and the Edinburgh chair was then held by William Edmonston Ayton, soon to be replaced by David Masson. Although early Victorian Glasgow had no dedicated chair of English then, literature continued to be taught as part of the logic curriculum, as it had from the days of Smith. In line with Scottish practice, the teaching of humanities, that's to say Latin and Greek, also tended to underline the literary as opposed to philological qualities of classical texts. Indicating the spirit of change, Nicholls' tutor Robert Buchanan insisted that rhetoric be taught as a separate course from Belle Lettre. Nevertheless, the rhetorical emphasis continued to be strong, the Aberdonian George Campbell's Philosophy of Rhetoric, published in 1776, was a set text for students in Glasgow until as late as 1865. Um, and eventually it was replaced by Nicholls' own book, uh, the, his own primer of English composition, published in, in 1879. Even after the institution of the chair, in Nicholls' time, English remained an ordinary course 
which, quote, provided information about literature together with practice and writing for students largely occupied with other courses. English and moral philosophy were taken by students in their final year of study and were regarded as the apex of the university course. The fact that after 1866, Nichols' opposite number in philosophy was the important Hegelian philosopher Edward Caird, and that the two colleagues sought to articulate the contents of their lectures seems to have made the final year of study at Glasgow um, a very an unforgettable experience for, for many students. With the rise of specialism in the Scottish universities in the wake of the Scottish university reforms of 1858, 1878 and 1889, honours courses were instituted in classics, mental philosophy, maths and natural philosophy, but not yet in English. For reasons that I'll return to below, Nicholl insisted that students taking an English honours course must also take one course in British history. But as there was no chair of history in Glasgow until 1893, that's uh, four years after his retirement, the honours course was only initiated uh, uh, under his successor, um, Andrew Bradley, who ironically was far less committed to historical method in literary studies than, uh, than Nicholl. Hobsbawm rather unkindly distinguishes the kind of belletrism associated with Bradley and his successor Walter Raleigh from the traditional Scottish understanding of the term. He characterizes it as, quote, purple prose, impressionistic evasion, style in lieu of analysis. In short, what he calls Gilmore Hill Baroque. That's great. There is some truth in this, but it also underestimates Bradley's significance in the rise of English studies. Neither Shakespearean tragedy nor Oxford lectures and poetry can be exactly accused of purple prose even if both were published after Bradley had departed from Glasgow. Um, it's also the case that neither book owes very much, I don't think, to, to Scot the Scottish academic tradition. One more important point needs to be made about the circumstances prompting the creation of Nicholls' chair. And Patchy, George Davy, who I'll come back to in a minute, this had nothing to do with creeping Anglicisation, least of all specialism in, of the Oxbridge variety, and everything to do with Victorian Scotland's proactive role in the British Empire. Davis suggested that English studies emerged as the result, I quote, not of academic policy, but of spontaneous interest on the part of the students. Citing by way of example the lectures of William Ayton, of course, popular Blackwoodian and author of the Lays of the Scottish Cavaliers, who apparently packed Edinburgh University's lecture, lecture halls. However, the principal reason for the establishment of Glasgow's Regius Chair of English in 1862 seems to have been much more pragmatic and it was due to the introduction of competitive examinations for the Indian Civil Service, in which over a quarter of total possible marks were awarded for proficiency in English language and literature. It was assumed that cadets could learn Persian, Hindi, and Sanskrit on the voyage out. <laughs> Thomas Macaulay, the architect of the scheme, believed that training in English literature would endow men, I quote, this is Macaulay, men who present the best part of our English nation in the colonies, he looked forward to the propagation of, quote, that literature before the light of which impious and cruel superstitions are fast taking flight on the banks of the Ganges. And wherever British literature spreads, may it be attended by British virtue and British freedom. As in, I'm interested by that, as, a, as in all this Victorian writing, about the slippage between English and British. Very interesting and indicative, I think. Um, and and Nicol does the same. There's the same kind of interesting... Um, uh, slippage um, because after all Macaulay was okay he was English but he was of Scottish descent um, the British Empire would be run by men who knew how to cite some of the Indian Civil Service exam questions set in the mid 50s quote write out the plot of Shakespeare's King Lear and mention the most remarkable characters of that play <laughs> or else quote mention the most important of Pope's literary friends describe briefly their leading characteristics and give a short account of one of the most celebrated works of each etc, etc. 
it's amazing that, that, that Britain held on to the Indian colonies for, <laughs> for a further, you know, a further century after that. The Indian Civil Service Report of 1855 presently, quote, inclined to think that the examinations for situations in the civil service of the East India Company will produce an effect which will be, will be felt in every seat of learning throughout the country. Now, Scottish university students, uh, since the days of Henry Dundas, had hoovered up many of the best jobs in the colonies. Now they found themselves excluded from the glittering prizes because, at least outside Edinburgh, they weren't taught English literature. As W.G. Blackie complained at a Glasgow meeting of the Scottish Academical Institute in 1858, I quote, where is the provision made in Scotland for enabling our youth to equip themselves for so searching an examination? I don't think he's being ironic. <laughs> I cannot shut my eyes to what appears to me to be one of the most glaring defects of Glasgow University, he continued, the want of professorships of the English language, literature and history. Although the ICS exam was clearly a case of the tail wagging the dog, and we've been talking about ref and impact statements and, you know, so, you know what's, what's changed, the University Commission of 1858 had promptly recommended the establishment of English as a university subject, and Queen Victoria endowed Glasgow's chair in English with Nicholas, its first incumbent. This makes sense of an of a otherwise apparently mysterious reference in Nicholls' inaugural lecture to the Indian civil service exams. Although he kind of feels, he clearly feels a bit uneasy about it, and he goes on to urge that these practical considerations should be subordinated to the fact that, I quote, a knowledge of our own literature and a command of the resources of our own language are of a still higher value as the best practical tests of general education. In the phrase of society, they mark a gentleman. Now, given Nichols' proactive involvement in female education, which I'll come to in a minute, this isn't quite as blinkered as it sounds. Nichols' chair was then very much the product of the age of empire, and as we'll see, for all his passionate liberalism, the preoccupations of an imperialistic culture determined many of his own views and practices. It's surprising how little historical research has been done on the rise of English in British universities, given the self-reflective habits of our discipline. America is much better served with excellent studies by uh, Richard Ullman, Gerard Graff, and Thomas Miller. I want briefly now to survey the available historical narrative in order to suggest that Nicol, not to mention his opposite number here, uh, David Masson, has been very poorly served. The standard history is still Franklin E. Court's book, Institutionalising English Literature, published in 1992. Court is an American scholar professedly building on earlier work by British critics Chris Baldick and Terry Eagleton. But in my view, his book is marred by a single-minded dedication to exposing the rise of university English as largely, uh, in ideological terms, a reactionary formation. Court starts by establishing a Manichaean distinction between a potentially progressive rhetorical and utilitarian tradition associated uh, with Adam Smith and his followers like Henry Brougham, against a reactionary belletrism inaugurated by Hugh Blair, that over the course of the 19th century modulated into aggressively nationalist and little Englander ideology. Though it doesn't make much of the fact, both streams of the subsequent British tradition of English studies are initiated in 18th century Scotland. The problems with his approach are apparent in Court's account of Adam Smith, and this is, I'll quote just a brief couple of sentences, Smith, was, he says, was a liberal reformer, a practical democratiser who wanted to extend educational opportunities to the lower orders. He was also, however, a naive social theorist. I've, never, I've heard Smith called all sorts of things, but I've never heard him called a naive social theorist before. Um, he taught that truly great writers, by virtue of their sterling characters, reinforced the natural moral authority that claimed to be the theoretical base of free market capitalism. 
The great challenge was to eliminate the spectre of self-serving corruption that threatened the dream of laissez-faire. The ideal economic order was attainable and English literature would have a place in the transmission of values and standards by which the dream would be realised. One would assume that this caricature of Adam Smith, the terms of which had been exploded by the scholarship of Donald Winch, Nick Phillipson, Emma Rothschild and others, might qualify him to be the villain of Franklin Court's ideology critique. But, on the contrary, Smith, the capitalist utilitarian straw man, becomes the hero, while the role of villain is played by his successor, Dr Hugh Blair. And he writes of Blair, Blair was passionately committed to the discourse of critical absolutism. The study of English reinforced the old aristocratic tradition, the retention of an orderly class structure situated firmly within the idea of cultural and racial supremacy. He concludes by suggesting, I quote, that his belletrism, when viewed against more practical educational needs that Smith and the later utilitarian reformers recognised, gives advance notice of the ensuing academic power struggle between the culturally bound aesthetics of conservative traditionalists and the utilitarian pragmatics of levelling democratizers that was re replayed repeatedly throughout the 19th century. Now, I'm, 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 I suppose I'm being unkind uh, to Court's book, and I think it does contain, you know, it's definitely worth a read, and um, I think it's got some interesting information on the, particularly I've, I found his chapter on the rise of English studies at University College and King's College London from the 1820s very interesting. Um, there's great detail on professors like Thomas Dale, A.J. Scott, and F.D. Morris. Um, for example, the relatively unknown Scott, who was a Glasgow graduate and a Church of Scotland minister, um, appointed to the chair at, in English at UCL in 1848, was apparently the first to devote an entire academic career in England to English studies. That's a little-known fact. That is interesting, I think. Court sees Scott as anticipating Matthew Arnold's theory of culture by a decade. In the light of emer the emerging importance of comparative philology, initiating a, quote, ideological justification for the study of vernacular literature that combined historicity and genealogical theories of racial consciousness with a concomitant conception of evolutionary nationalism promoted in the service of sympathy and human fellowship. Although Court professes a debt to Baldick's, Chris Baldick's social mission of English criticism, he seeks to de dethrone Arnoldian disinterestedness, Hellenism and intellectual cosmopolitanism from the central position that uh, Baldick uh, affords them. After 1860, writes Court, English literary study in England moved away from Arnold's dream of an encompassing diachronic cultural ideal <coughs> and toward a limiting racial, natural, and cultural insularity, sorry, national, not natu natural, national, and cultural insularity that was the reason in the first place for the scepticism with which he viewed university efforts to make English literature part of the curriculum. This is the basis for the story, the, the story told in Court's long final chapter, the setting for his remarks on the two professors I'm concerned with uh, this evening, John Nicholl and David Masson. Masson was an Aberdeen, and this is really my bit at Masson, I apologise for its brevity, but Masson was an Aberdeen stonecutter's son from a Freekirk background. He'd moved to London in the 1840s, and in 1852 he succeeded Arthur Hugh Clough as Chair of English at University College London. But he returned to Scotland in 1865 when he replaced William Ayton in the Edinburgh chair. Court presents Masson as, I quote, the first in the network of 19th century English professors who initiated the mainstream tradition of academic English as we recognise it today, de-emphasising rhetoric and establishing the historical lineaments of an English literary canon. Well, he doesn't have much to say about his publications, including an important biography of John Milton and a, a magisterial edition of De Quincey, which I remember reading through when I was working on, on the book that Sue mentioned in, 19, in the early 1990s. Neither does Court quite know what to, do, to say about Masson's cultural politics. 
On the one hand, he tells us that Anglo-Saxon racialism provided the basis for Masson's teaching approach, citing his defense of localism and his attack on Arnoldian cosmopolitanism, what he calls Sandy Mackayism. Uh, it's quite a specific re uh, reference that, that Court talks about um, from its character in Alton Locke, in Kingsley's Alton Locke, um, in his 1866 inaugural lecture at Edinburgh. With Masson, he writes, we can see the tight academic alliance that history, literature, and racial politics were forming, an alliance that by the 1870s would displace comparative philology as the primary shaping force on language study. On the other hand, Court has to admit that Masson held a strongly democratic view of English studies, going further than Broome, at the time who was the Chancellor of Edinburgh University, in taking the rapprochement with the proletariat out of the committee room and directly onto the streets. Apart from this, Masson's extension lecturing, his pioneering work in promoting women's education and women's suffrage, and his Scottish patriotism and dedication to Scottish literature are quickly passed over. And, and we, should be, we should remind ourselves that Masson published a study of Drummond, of Drummond of Hawthenden, and he made a point of lecturing on Scottish texts. At least Court gives him the credit, though, gives Masson the credit for being the leader of what he calls a core of professors who established the main theoretical framework of English studies whereas poor John Nicholl is cast as a mere follower. Alongside John Morley, who replaced Masson in the chair at UCL from 1865, uh, Edward Dowden, chair of English at Trinity Dublin from 1867, and Arthur Napier, um, whom I've already mentioned as the first incumbent of Oxford's Merton chair. In many respects, Court's account of Nicholl is misleading, although he has accurately suggests that his principal intellectual importance was in realigning the study of English with history rather than comparative philology even if in so doing he was only following in Masson's footsteps. Of course, although Masson wasn't in Scotland until after Nicholl had taken the chair in Glasgow, he'd been very active at UCL, and much of the, um, his, his pedagogy had been developed in the course of uh, holding the chair at UCL. Nicholl is presented by court as a Burkean conservative, for whom, I quote, all major historical events had contributed to the creation of a distinct individuality that characterised the English racial spirit. His concern for communicating an Arnoldian sweetness and light, and Court says nothing about Nicholl's serious reservations concerning Arnold, is presented as, I quote, the communication of a narrow standard of Christian ethics based on a rendering of what he deemed incontrovertible textual truth. In this light, it's hardly surprising to hear that Nicholl was, I quote, antagonistic towards political and economic reforms, particularly those favoured by utilitarianism, preferring to advocate... I quote again, the value of political and economic authority, the sanctity of divinely appointed laws of truth and order, and the ultra-conservative ideal of a moral progress tied directly to the study of literature as revealed truth. Now, I'm quoting this at length because I'll suggest in a moment that it's really a, it really is a caricature of Nichols' position, um, and I think that wouldn't in itself be a problem if there was anything else, but you know, it's just about the only, it's really the only study, it's only the broader study of Nichols' intellectual context or his significance as a university professor and literary critic, apart from an excellent essay by Andrew Hook, who is with us this evening, um, which looks at, uh, which really does a wonderful um, uh, uh, reclamation, I think, of Nichols' of Nichols' importance, particularly as a someone who inaugurates the study of American literature. Although Court's, Court's book fills up a major lacuna in Chris Baldick's social mission of English criticism by paying service to the importance of Scotland in the development of English studies. He doesn't quite not know what to do with the awkward fact that the little Englander racial ideology, which identifies with Victorian English, seems frequently to be of Scottish descent, an awkwardness about which he really makes no comment. Writing in 1961 in The Democratic Intellect, George Davy had seen the matter from a very different angle. 
harboring little doubt that the development of English studies in Scottish universities, mainly as a rival to philosophy and humanities, was a symptom of internal colonialism, a creeping anglicisation expressed in academic specialisation, gnawing at the roots of Scotland's venerable tradition of generalist education, a tradition that went back really to the, to the Renaissance. Nicholas cast as one of Davies' arch-villains, along with his Glasgow colleague, the Bailey-educated Professor Caird, and this is Davy. The theme of the opposedness of philosophy to taste was introduced by John Nicholl, the Glasgow Oxonian, and a friend of Swinburne. <laughs> that's, 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 that's below the belt. Yeah. As a reason for the peculiar importance of English studies as a means of civilising the uncouth Scots, the lucid love of argumentation seemed to those Scots, over whom Oxford had cast its spell, a mortal sin, both against the romantic imagination and against the standards of solid scholarship. In fact, as I'll argue in a moment, this, this, sorry, this misrepresents Nicholls' dedication to the generalist and democratic educational tradition of the Scottish universities, a fact that's acknowledged by Davies' disciple Andrew Lockhart-Walker in his 1994 book, Revival of the Democratic Intellect, which actually praises Nicholl uh, for those things, but doesn't refer to the fact that Davies had said something really very different about him. The discipline's Scottish origin and trajectory is the object of Robert Crawford's cheekily titled 1998 collection, The Scottish Invention of English Literature. Although also willing to allow for an element of internal colonialism and the rise of Scottish rhetoric and belles lettres, Crawford's book turns the pendulum in the opposite direction from Davy by taking pride in what he calls the empowering marginality of this tradition. Essays by Court, again, it's a good essay actually, um, uh, Andrew Hook, which I've mentioned already, Chris Worth, explore the influence of Scottish rhetoric in the, the so-called marginal universities of North America, Australia, and New Zealand. And Crawford rightly articulates a post-colonial perspective that has a positive story to tell about creative mis misappropriations of metropolitan paradigms on the, um, on the peripheries. At the same time, he keeps a judici judicious eye on Scotland's dual role as both this internal colony and a colonizing force within the British Empire from Nova Scotia to Dunedin. In his brief remarks in the concluding chapter, Crawford offers what's perhaps the only balanced overview of Scottish chairs of English in Victorian Scotland, tracing the 20th century development of Scottish literary study via Masson's student, G. Gregory Smith, and seeking to locate contemporary creative writing courses in relation to the old rhetoric tradition. And as the founder of St Andrew's creative writing course, uh, Robert Crawford was very, um, uh, you know, had very strong reasons for doing that. Although the Scottish invention offers a salutary antidote to Court's view of English studies as essentially repressive, it perhaps underestimates the significance of, non, of the non-Scottish input in the 19th century rise of English, of which Court is, for obvious reasons, less culpable. The early teaching of English literature in dissenting academies south of the border um, is barely mentioned, just for, for, to give one example, nor, nor really the influence of, of figures like, you know, like Coleridge or, or Arnold or, or Newman. Moreover, at the heart of the Scottish invention is a grand narrative of disciplinary formation. As Crawford asserts in his introduction, when we talk about 18th century Scottish universities' rhetoric and belles lettres and 19th century university classes in English literature, we are talking about one evolving subject. A similar line is followed in two fine essays by Neil Rhodes and Joan Pittock, the former playing on a historical recorso in, quote, the French connection with Scotland in the 1720s and the 1960s, the Paris connection, the latter presenting Aberdeen as, quote, an evolutionary microcosm in the history of English studies. Maybe so, but it's worth recalling that things looked rather less evolutionary to Nicholl in 1862 when he discussed the narrower and wider scope of the Victorian English chair in, with respect to the earlier rhetoric belles lettres tradition. It may be true to say with Chris Baldick that 
from the very beginning, English literature as a subject has been founded upon a series of uncertainties and conflicts. For a discipline professing criticism, a sense of crisis may be an appropriate, even a favourable condition. Well, it often certainly feels like that. <laughs> okay. Um, in my closing remarks, I'm, I'm, I'll yeah, for another, another five, 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 ten minutes. Yeah. Um, in my closing remarks, I want to return to Nicol and to suggest some of the ways in which his achievement has been overlooked or underrated by modern commentators when they've noticed him at all, which is usually never. For a start, it's necessary to put the record straight regarding his political and religious views. Nicol inherited his advanced liberalism from his father, who was a committed freethinker and radical friend of John Stuart Mill, Mazzini, and Kossuth, the, the um, uh, Hungarian um, patriot, uh, as well as de Quincey, and an enthusiast for American literature. That's actually, um, Nicol inherits his enthusiasm for, for America from his father, who's uh, been in correspondence and brings back, has a lot of books, American uh, publications in his library in, in the observatory in Down Hill in, in Glasgow. His stepmother was a woman called Elizabeth Pease of Darlington, and she was a, a noted feminist and anti-slavery campaigner, so she's also an important influence on his development. Nicol arrived at Bailey as a confirmed Glasgow radical. He initially loathed Oxford. He regarded Matthew Arnold, Oxford's professor of poetry, as, I quote, no more than an exquisite imitator of the Greeks. He knows Sophocles, but it is to the exclusion of Shakespeare, and his judgment is as much reactionary and partial as that of Rossetti and the pre-Raphaelites. At Balliol, Nicol founded the, uh, a club, a debating club, uh, called the Old Mortality Club, whose members included Swinburne, T.H. Green, G.R. Luke, A.V. Dicey, Aeneas Mackay, and James Bryce. Committed to intellectual debate, Dicey, who was later a Vinerian professor of law at Oxford, recalled that the club's preoccupations in the later 1850s were, I quote, the cause of foreign nationalities, and especially of Italy, the crimes of Louis Napoleon, and the abolition of university tests. We considered ourselves advanced radicals, not to say republicans. Like his mentor, Benjamin Jowett, Nicol always harboured ambivalent feelings uh, about Oxford. After taking a first in greats in 1859, he notably refused to take his MA um, or apply for a fellowship in protest at religious tests. At this time, John Stuart Mill was a major intellectual influence, but as Nicol grew older, he came more under the sway of Carlyle, whom he described as a grand old sullen Diogenes, and of course was the subject of his final monograph um, of 1892. On a trip to London in 1859, Nicol called on the Carlyles at Cheney Walk, and he recorded in his diary, to Chelsea, surly reception by Thomas and Mrs. C. I won't go there again till I'm asked. <laughs> <laughs> like other members of Old Mortality, um, who, who are the core, really, of the university liberals studied by Christopher Harvey in his book, The Lights of Liberalism, Nicol later parted company with Gladstone over Irish home rule and heartily espoused the cause of liberal unionism, writing to his friend William Seller, and William Seller was the professor of classics and or humanities in Edinburgh, of the need to liberalise the Conservative Party and make them, quote, national and rational rather than the party of the country gentlemen. This has doubtless given rise to the notion of Nicola as an ultra-conservative, but such a view needs careful qualification. The man who supported national independence in Italy, Poland, Hungary, and nearly everywhere else except for Ireland and Scotland, was also a fervent, fervent supporter of the Unionist side in the American Civil War. Um, his travels in the war-torn republic in 1865, um, he visited some of the battlefields you know, and was very aware of the, the terrible 
price that had been paid, that the Republic had, played, had paid, paid for the, for the Civil War. Um, he paid visits to Emerson, to Longfellow, to Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, and this was, in a way, the formative influence on his, his book, The American Literature and Historical Sketch, as, as Andrew um, uh, points out. I think there's an interesting story to be told about the connection between what it meant to uphold the Union, the American Union, um, and the more liberal side of British Empire unionism in the later decades of the 19th century. That's something I don't know much about, but I think it would be interesting to inquire in that direction. Nicol may have become a committed liberal unionist in later life, but he had nothing but contempt for the Conservative government that introduced the University Reform Bill of 1888, as we'll see in a moment. There is perhaps a hint of these later politics and the linguistic and cultural nationalism of Nicholls' inaugural lecture of 1862. The map of language is the map of universal ethnology, he argued, and in the literature of a race, as in the strata of a land, we may read its history. Although, as I've suggested, Nicholls' philological lamp burnt rather dim in his subsequent Glasgow lectures, he argued here that English, I quote, was the most complete language in Europe because it has enriched itself by receiving so many contributions from Celtic, Scandinavian, Saxon, Latin, and Norman French. Anticipations here of Matthew Arnold's study of Celtic literature delivered just four years later. Shakespeare and Burns, continued Nicol, are at this day read from the banks of the Connecticut and the Columbia River to the sands of Sydney and the Yellow Sea. At the close of the century, it is calculated that English will be spoken by at least 150 millions of human beings. Not only is Burns named alongside Shakespeare as a pivotal force in the emergence of English as a world language, but Nichols' notion of English incorporates the Anglophone USA as well as the British Empire, and he quotes David Hume on the transatlantic destiny of English. Robert Crawford notes the paradox that Scottish professors in the Victorian era, men like Aiton, John Veach, Nicol and Masson, whilst flying an increasingly nationalistic flag for English language and literature, were also beginning to address a distinctly Scottish literary tradition more directly than their 18th century predecessors, men like uh, Adam Smith or Blair or Witherspoon, who had simply banned Scotticisms or Americanisms, uh, to quote Crawford. Crawford delivers the following verdict on, on Nicol. Nicol is another of the mid-19th century teachers of English in whose work we can see a pressure for the emergence of fuller consideration for native cultural difference in language and literature. Yet, Nicholls' consideration of Scottish literature remains limited. Despite certain Scottish pressures, the title of his subject governs his excursions into his own or other non-English cultures. Nevertheless, that Scottish pressure shouldn't be underestimated, for, as um, Andrew Hook notes, Nicholls' major publications were all on Scottish literature or else on American literature, with the exception of his book on, on Bacon. Nichols' 1882 work, uh, his book on Robert Burns, originally um, intended to accompany Scott Douglas's new edition of Burns's works, stands out like a shining light from the murky stream of Victorian Burns' biography and effectively makes the case for Burns and Scott's vernacular poetry as a major influence on British Romanticism. Anticipating the methods of modern criticism, Nichols used the life to illuminate the work rather than the other way around, as Hobsbawm notes. Content to support Matthew Arnold's campaign against the Philistines and barbarians of Victorian Britain, especially Victorian Scotland, Nicol was nevertheless irritated by Arnold's Scotophobia in his remarks on Burns, what he called his damned iteration of Scotch drink, Scotch religion and Scotch manners. You remember alluding to a very famous passage where Arnold weighs into to Burns. Um, 
Burns's, he, he wrote Burns's excess of patriotism in songs such as Sick Apostle or Rogues certainly opened him to charges of narrow provincialism, he conceded, in the eyes of cosmopolitans like Arnold. Playing down the folkloristic reading of Scottish vernacular literature promoted by William Ayton, Nicholl insisted that Burns was legitimately, quote, a national rather than a peasant poet, national referring to Scotland rather than Britain, earning that title both for his gift of satirising Scottish narrowness as for his power of, quote, elevating and intensifying our northern imagination. This was refreshing in an era when, as Richard Finlay remarks, the Scottish middle class were remarkably successful in their ability to see others as ourselves rather than vice versa. And in so doing, turned Burns into a paradigm of Scottish bourgeois virtue. Nicol, the religious sceptic, certainly can't be accused of letting holy willy off the hook. And he also showed sympathy with Burns's radical politics. Over the House of Brunswick, it has never been found possible to be poetically enthusiastic, he wrote, <laughs> uh, with his usual dry humour. Quoting uh, Dr. C James Curry's remark that Burns was, quote, a monument to the expiring genius of an ancient and independent nation, Nicol added that if he was the last of the old, he was also the first of the new, a poet of a democratic world. He abstained from moralising on Burns's what he called his besetting sin of alcoholism, but he was happy to, happy to admit that the poet was indeed passion's slave, more reckless in his loves than Lord Byron, almost as much so as King David. Of the bawdy and merry muses of Caledonia, he wrote, some were amusing, others only rough. But, like Chaucer, Burns owed half his power, quote, to the touch of bohemianism that demands now and then a taste of wild life. Nicol, long-life friend of Swinburne, we might remind ourselves again, evidently felt that Victorian Scotland needed more, not less, of that bohemian spirit. Great as were Scott and Carlyle's prose writers, neither had approached Burns's genius for combining power and passion with musical expression. In this respect, Nicol continued, in a highly significant critical judgment, his only heir was the future lord of English verse, the boy who was about to leave the shadows of Loch Nagar for the groves of Newstead Abbey, <laughs> namely Lord Byron. But in contrast to Thomas Carlyle, whose influential 1828 essay compared the two poets in order to belittle Byron, Nicholl saw a more positive connection. Burns, he wrote, is the ancestor of Wordsworth, to whom he bequeathed his pathetic interpretation of nature and of Byron, the inheritor of his passions wild and strong. Nicol here picked up on earlier judgments in his 1880 study of Lord Byron for Morley's English Men of Letters series. In that earlier book, he'd weighed into the conventional wisdom that sundered Byron from the, the Anglo-Scot, from the Scottish cultural tradition. This resulted in casting Byron as the antithesis of the canny Scot, which Nicol complained was a false stereotype, I quote, apt to make the critics forget the hot heart that has marked the early annals of the country, from the Hebrides to the borders, with so much violence, and at the same time has been the source of so much strong passion and persistent purpose. Nicol picked up on Byron's self-description in his account of Burns's antithetical mind, dirt and deity, all mixed up in one compound of inspired clay. But he didn't go so far, he didn't of course go so far, Regis Professor as he was, to read Byron's dissented cosmopolitanism as a challenge to the organic integrity of the English canon as it was being defined by the Coleridgeans. Crawford has written well about the influence of David Masson's teaching, with some unexpected input from his successor, George Sainsbury, on G. Gregory Smith, whose theory of the Caledonian antizizigy exerted such a strong influence on Macdermott, Edwin Muir, and the developing shape of, uh, of Scottish modernism. Correspondingly, the influence of Nicholls' fresh interpretation of Byron and Burns seems to go in two, two, two ways. One, in the unionist direction, um, it, uh, shapes Lord Rosebery's remark in his 1896 speech to a Glasgow audience, 
on the occasion of Burns' centenary, centenary of his death, writes, I quote, the two great natural forces in British literature are Shakespeare and Burns. The audience apparently applauded his use of British here. The other, more unexpected judgment, issued in Hugh McDermott's later essay, The Neglect of Byron, collected in the Rorkel Tongue, that, I quote, Byron was beyond all else a Scottish poet, the most nationally typical of Scottish poets, not excluding Burns. He answers, not to stock conceptions, the grotesque Anglo-Scottish kailyard travesty of Scottish psychology, but to all the realities of our dark, difficult, unequal, and inconsistent national temper. McDermott clearly risks simply replacing the usual anodyne stereotype of Scottish character with a darker and more volatile version of the same. But despite his difficulties in wresting Burns from the sterile cult which surrounded him in 20th century Scotland, in McDermott's judgment of Byron, the submerged notion of distinctively Scottish romanticism, which I think one could claim is partly inherited from Nicol, is coming up for air. Now, time forbids any account of Nicol's pioneering role in university extension lecturing or the Lectures for Ladies series that he instituted in the Corporation Galleries in Socky Hall Street in Glasgow, uh, which was um, the launching pad for a range of activities that led to the regular admission of women to Glasgow University via the foundation of Queen Margaret College in 1877. By the time that the English Honours School started at Glasgow, 59 women were studying arts subject, and most, among other courses, read English. Uh, I noticed that when I borrowed uh, Nichols' books from Glasgow University Library, they all were stamped uh, Queen Margaret College, mm -hmm. and some of them actually had belonged to Nichols himself, one inscribed to his, his uh, father-in-law. But I'll finish by returning to George Davies' view of Nichols as an effete Oxonian, whose new chair of English contributed to the death of the old Scottish generalist tradition. In fact, Nichols saw that university study of literature as a means of countering the spirit of narrow specialisation and market-driven policy, which was such a dominant feature of the Victorian era, and which, um, again, none of us need to be reminded, again severely challenges the future of arts and humanities in Scottish and English universities. In a pamphlet bitterly attacking the University Reform Bill of 1888, Nichols cited Fichte's vocation of the scholar to complain that the traditional Scottish university curriculum, with its generalist emphasis, was being overtaken by, I quote, the demands of utilitarianism apt to set exclusive store on production and exchange and to weigh too lightly the strengthening of our will, the refinement of our taste, and the enlarging of our sympathies. It's perhaps tempting to follow Davy and also Franklin Court in reading this as a bid to Hellenise a Philistine Scottish middle class, a legacy of um, a hangover, if you like, of Nichols' uh, days at Balliol. But the target of Nichols' 1888 pamphlet was actually the Conservative government in London, which had dealt a massive blow to the generalist approach to Scottish higher education, which he felt was best represented by the study of English history and philosophy. While reluctant to criticise the gentlemanly ethics still prevailing at Oxford and Cambridge, Nicol was proud to emphasise that the Scottish universities were quite distinct insofar as they remained, I quote, seminaries for the nation, comparatively poor, they are institutions for the comparably poor, slenderly recruited from the upper class, but open in practice as well as theory to the more thrifty, intelligent or aspiring of the lower they are, in effect, grand public schools for the bulk of the middle class of the country. Despondent at the passing of the 1888 Universities Reform Act, the following year, Nicol resigned his Glasgow chair after 27 years, his health shattered, in his own words, by, quote, this perpetual teaching of roughs and wrangling with senates. He abandoned his native Glasgow to spend his final half-decade in London, where he died in 1894. Let's finish this. Thank you very much. That's a uh, terrifically 
interesting view on, on nickel and, and that much wider hinterland. It, it reinforces my sense that the elevation of Gregory Smith 1903, wasn't it? And uh, Caledonian anti-syzygy is one of the most pernicious things to hit the <laughs> theory of Scottish literature and Scottish culture. I mean, it, it, it seems to me to be responsible for all kinds of artificial bifurcations, whether it's Glasgow, Edinburgh, yeah. you know, anglicised, gotticised, uh, whatever. And, and, I mean, one of the things you've done is, is show that that's, so, you know, it's, it's far too simplistic. Um, it it does still inflect an awful lot of writing, and I mean Franklin Courts is 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 one, but a, a lot of nationalist readings of Scottish uh, literature as as distinct from other things too. Um, I thought too that one of the things that you were suggesting was that the the kind of rhetoric and bellatural rhetoric in English literature, which is being instituted, and, and I would I would add Blair to, to Nicol, and I, you know here I don't think there's an opposition, is one that right from the beginning says English literature includes Scottish literature, American literature, uh, it includes elements of the French rhetorical tradition, the Port Royal, it includes elements of the Germanic uh, tradition, whether philological or, or romantic in, in, in its opening. And, I mean, I'm interested in what we might begin to sketch as the continuities between mm. what Blair is doing and what Nicholas yeah. is doing, rather than that mm. view that Court takes, which mm. is to make Blair the villain of a, mm. a historical mm. evolutionary piece. Mm. I mean, Blair actually lectures on contemporary Scottish literature, mm. uh, Ossian, mm. sure. um, and yeah. uh, he also talks about yeah. the ballad tradition and mm. other things too. And, and when reading Franklin Court, one thinks he probably never actually read Blair all the way through. He already knew what he was going to say about him. But I'm also struck that, that some of Blair's successes, including William Spaulding, I think, in the 1840s, actually lectured on American literature, contemporary American literature, though he never, like Nicholl, published on it. And I think that there's that capaciousness of, of recognising... Um, literature and English literature uh, as multinational. It's not mm. a narrowly national, mm. whether you think of it as English mm. or, or, or British um, writing. It's actually to do with writing itself and its relation to imaginative activity. So I just wondered whether in starting we could, we could think about that. They, because they, long before English literature starts having its fights about whether it should really include American literature or whether it's a separate subject. These writers are simply taking it for granted that, that uh, there are interesting comparisons to be made there. And they're doing so partly on the think of a, a journalistic tradition. Uh, I mean, Blackwood's publishes essays on American literature in the 1820s, and those are clearly part of the hinterland from which someone like Spaulding and then Nicola Droy, mm. I think. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, mean, I think I, I think the question. I mean, what interests me is, is the way, in, and I agree with you that there is a continuity, and you know, anyone who's read Blair's lectures knows that. Yeah. But Nicol doesn't seem very aware of that when he when he talks about his chair being narrow and wider, mm -hmm. and but its focus on English, on one particular language, mm -hmm. and the, and his emphasis on on philology. And I, I wonder. I, mean, I, I suppose the big the big question is to what extent do we um, accept that. The paradigm shift is around the rise of of, of racialized nationalism mm. in the mid in the early in the eighteen thirties forties, 
uh, Anglo-Saxonism, if you like, mm -hmm. or its its inflections in a Scottish context, mm -hmm. which are themselves very complex. Mm -hmm. um, because he doesn't seem, you know, he, he, from one point of view, you could, you could say that Nichols' scope is much, is narrower than Blair's mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah. You know, it's less cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that certainly would be partly what courts argue against. I mean, mm -hmm. There is a kind of intellectual cosmopolitanism, though I think, in, in Nicol and and his and that group. You know, for they've, they've read the German, they've read, they're very well versed in German philosophy, as well as in the philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment. Mm. Um, but um, I mean, I think that that's and that, in that sense, I half agree with Court. I mean, that's Court's mm. kind of argument mm. in one in one sense, mm. but it's it's a kind of very complicated issue. But I think there's a case to be made mm. that these chairs and and the institutionalising of English literature as as we mm. see it evolving through the nineteenth century in Scotland in particular are, are one of the crucial factors militating against a racialised mm. national literary mm. history. I mean the the, the mm. kind of thing that we're getting from uh, from the continent, mm. which itself is drawing from a, a certain strand of Scottish romantic thinking, but. Um, ten and, and so on are, are much narrower and much more ideologically driven uh, than it would seem to me any of those um, examples that we've been talking about. I mean, even Arnold. I mean, to think of the, of, the, of you know the Celtic, study of Celtic literature. I mean, that, that, that is actually, despite all the cosmopolitanism, yeah. there is quite it's quite a racialized account of, yes. of British culture yes. in the sense that it is it is a, a it's, you know he's, he's picking up from Renan on that celebration mm -hmm. of of the of of, of racial mixture and, and hybridity and everything else, but it is quite hierarchical yes. in the sense yes. that the Anglo-Saxons on top, the yes. Celtic, you know, he actually thinks modern Welsh ought to be stamped out. He can't see yes. the point of anyone <laughs> learning Welsh. Uh, yeah. uh, but that there should be an uh, Oxford chair of, of, Cel of Celtic languages. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's, a, it's, a, it's really very com it's very complex, I think. And I, I absolutely agree with what you say about the Caledonian anticity, because um, mm -hmm. I think that, that, in a sense, does emerge from this difficult... I, I think Robert Crawford makes... Sets up the argument there in an interesting way in the final essay in, in the Scottish Invention of um, English Literature. Um, but um, I think that the antisystem is, in a sense, reflecting that kind of that very divided position, um, compromise position, in a sense, of the English, of the Scottish English chairs, mm. Scottish chairs of English, mm. if you like, their own, their own cultural dislocation, perhaps. Yes, if one sees it that way, or one might actually see it not as a sign of their provincialism mm. with respect to England, but actually of their capacity to see beyond that. I mean, the fact that they are reaching for German and French and American um, uh, elements to, yes, yeah. to keep that, that sense going. Well, that's certainly what McDermott's trying to do, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, to to, to internationalise again. So I thought the question of parochialism is, a great, is very, is, very, is important very important indeed. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, no one amongst all these accusations against Nicol, no one accuses him of being parochial. Uh, although Court does accuse Masson of being parochial, the Sandy Mackayism. Mm. Is, you know, basically, Masson is characterised by this very narrow uh, little Englander mentality, as Court puts it. Mm. You know, although Court doesn't know what to do with his Scottish no. inflection. Um, I'm sure there are lots of comments or. Masonites ready to <laughs> <laughs> leap into the fray. <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested by the, the I'm, I know very little about Masson, but how different the backgrounds are. Mm -hmm. Masson's own Abedonian, you know, working class, yeah. uh, pre Kirk background, Nichols, um, academic, middle class, Glasgow middle class, uh, intellectual, advanced liberal milieu. 
Uh, and he does seem, he never really, you know, he never names his religious persuasion, but he's, he's evidently some sort of a Unitarian. Mm. One of the reasons he likes America. American, he, yes. He, loves, he really relates to the Transcendentalists. And he, said, he talks somewhere about how his, his own church is very well represented. Mm. Or he doesn't, ideologically, he's got problems with dissent, but, he, but he's kind of an intellectual Unitarian, mm. and, and in, in contrast to Masson, I think. Although I don't know much about Masson's later theological ideas and how important they are. There we yeah, I thank you for that sort of nuanced, very nuanced reading. And uh, you kind of demonstrated that the institutional history of English is more about discontinuities, mm. or as much about that as continuities. I was just wondering about these hard-driving ideological narratives mm. that you've caught, Eagleton, Boldick, even to a certain extent Crawford. Mm. Um, they look very much like history written backwards. Yeah. Um, that sort of like, uh, I was thinking... Maybe um, to institutional history, what how the tiger got its stripes is to natural history yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Um, what do you think governs that? I mean, is it, the historiography of that is, is very strange. And ironically, it's very much Macaulian mm. in the mm. way that it tells that story mm. as well, but mm. coming to obviously quite different conclusions. Mm. Yeah, this, uh, there, there are different kinds of grand narrative, aren't there? They're all, they all choose their particular, you know, sort of favourite and then and do that retrospective story. But I suppose I'm not, there's, a, there, there is, there's not much of it, though. You know, there's very little institutional reflection on... I mean, even Baldick isn't really doing that at all. He's really more concerned with the social mission. He doesn't... His, he just says a bit about institutionalisation, but Court's the only one who actually talks about university chairs and courses. Um, and that's what surprises me in a way. I, mean, I think it's much better studied in the American context. Um, and of course, part of what's going on in Court's book is uh, is coming from that bifurcation of the rhetorical yeah. and the literary, and the literary in yeah. terms of in institutional structures in the American colleges, and the fact that rhetoric has, has survived in in rather ghettoized departments, yeah. um, separated yeah. off from from English literature, which um, has, has never occurred in in the British system. Yeah. Which, which still continues, isn't it? Yes. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. And which Robert Crawford wants to argue is still kind of behind the... Yes. Uh, that's yeah. a re- retrospective justification of creative writing courses being yes. set up <laughs> in the 1990s. Really rhetoric, yes. Yeah, it's really going back to an ancient yeah. edition of rhetoric. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. It's a very interesting question that you asked, but I, I, I need to think about it more. Um, I, I guess it's just, they're just slender. There, there's not a lot of it. There's, not a, there's, there's a surprising lack of analysis, if you like. Um, and, you know, I was very surprised. I mean, Baldy does mention the importance of, of the empire, but he's mainly concerned with pedagogy. He's mainly concerned with the way in which English literature is being taught in, say, in, in the in Hindu college in Kolkata by, by Alexander Duff or something like that yeah. to Bengali students in the 1820s and 30s. Now he's, you know, it's Gary Viswanathan's argument that English is taught as a... I mean, that's another yeah. exaggeration, that English is taught as a subject, academic subject, in Bengal before it's taught in... In anywhere in Britain, well, of course, that ignores Scotland you know, completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that that that, that Baldy doesn't spot the importance of the civil service exams for the creation of actual dedicated English chairs, mm-hmm. um, and that's strange. That really is a kind of and, and indeed competitive exams. I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert at all on 19th century mm-hmm. Scottish university examining, but I think a lot of it was still oral, mm-hmm. and that the actual written exam as we now know it comes into play is again driven by. By, by, by civil service reform and by, by, mm. by very political uh, forces. Mm. Of course, uh, Macaulay's note on education is not universally recognised throughout the land of India either. That's right. That's true. That's, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah.
Syria. Yes, uh, I picked up on this this reference to the uh, to the Indian civil service mm. service requirement, the requirements for the exams mm. as well. And mm. I was I was wondering a little bit because I I think it feels a little bit like a contradiction because mm. because on one hand uh, people in Scotland, the Scots uh, seems to have, seem to have been been afraid of being disadvantaged when it came to passing the exams or, or rather feeling, feeling, being afraid that their sons would be mm. disadvantaged perhaps rather than, than themselves. <laughs> but on the other hand, there were quite a number of schools that were pretty successful and that mm. made rather successful careers within the civil service yeah. and they obviously then hadn't been disadvantaged. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of a, of a, of a contradiction between was it just a fear, some perceived yeah. fear, or was it something that uh, that has actually been felt more, 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 uh, more um, as a fact, or mm. was it something that they that they more feared that they would be disadvantaged? Exactly. I think they fear they suddenly see the carpet from being, being pulled out from under their feet, um, and they they realise they're going to have to change the educational inst institutions. They're, they're going to have to create chairs of English if that if. If, if, that, if that's not going to happen, if, if they're going to be able to continue their successful um, you know, and, and disproportionate employment in the East India Company and subsequently mm -hmm. in the Raj. Because and that's presumably the end of patronage. Yeah. I mean, when Robertson's exactly. sons, as principal of the university yeah. here, when his sons go out yeah. to the imperial service, they do as a result of patronage. I mean, they don't take an exam. No, 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 no. I mean, it's about the professionalisation of yeah. the Victorian middle class. And, and you know, so Robert Burns's two sons get go out to India to, to, to get commissions in the East India Company Army in in eighteen ten, and the commissioner is Sir Frank Shaw, the Lord Provost, the Lord Mayor of London, uh, who's paid for one of the boys, James um, Glencairn and Burns, to go to Christ's Hospital, uh, absolute Ayrshire London patronage network, uh, and Lady um, um, the, the, the Marchioness of Hastings, who is uh, the daughter of the Earl of Loudoun, Ayrshire, powerful Ayrshire family, who's married to the Marquis of Hastings, who's the Governor General of India, right through that period. You know, um, James, I'm just looking at James Glencairn's letters down in Alloway, and you know, there are all these letters to back to Gene Armour in Alloway, saying he's going to have, a, have supper with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with the, the Marchioness of Hastings, and uh, he hopes that she can do something for him. And she would do indeed. You know, she, she promotes him into a very successful career. Uh, he spends 30 years uh, in, 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 in the Bengal infantry. Um, that, that's typical of the older type mm. of patronage that you know Tom Devine and others have written very convincingly about that and just how and it goes back before Dundas in fact mm. it's really very well established uh, but it's clearly um, you know it's, it's, it's coming to an end that with the, with the, the, the heralding of these new exa competitive exams there's a need for a, for a change in policy and I think that, that really does, what, does, does seem to drive it in a very important way mm. which is weird it's a weird sort of reversal putting, again putting that cart before the horse I was struck that uh, the majority of people going into these appeared to be boys who just finished school, mm. and they went sort of they studied English literature uh, with grammars uh, from handbooks and so on, and that's how they were expected to yeah. pass. Um, and there was very little talk about uh, sort of university education mm. and all of this. Um, it was seemed to be sort of you either went to university mm. or you went for the civil service mm. now instead. Um, so I was wondering, um, given that obviously in Glasgow they view this as something that people will be doing after studying, after studying English um, in university, then what might account for that discrepancy? I mean, obviously I haven't read everything, sure, um, yeah. so I was just wondering. 
Well, that's very interesting, particularly as English is studied in the fourth year. So what we're so what's also changing is the age at which cadets are being recruited. They're not going out any longer at the age of fourteen or fifteen. They're going out at the age of presumably twenty-one, uh, and and that's part of the charge of the university commissions, the, the Scottish University reform. One of the charges, and Davy talks a lot about this, is that it's thought that the Scottish universities aim. They're like basically high schools. They're 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 not really universities. They're educating boys between the ages of, of you know fourteen and and and, and, and eighteen. Uh, so it's becoming part of the professionalisation. It's also about getting about getting old. But it's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So it would it would be perfectly possible, presumably, to take the exam. Well, I, don't, I wonder. You probably would have to. Have you found evidence that people, are, boys, are taking these exams without a university degree? Right. That's interesting. Is that is that in Scotland specifically or in England? Because yeah, I suspect that another yes, another dimension here is the difference between what's going on in Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. which are still what people mean when they say go to yeah. university in, in England, which is very definitely not a pre-civil service thing. I, I mean, you're destined for the church or, or finishing school, as it were, uh, uh, element of it. Um, still in, in the early, well, well in, until the, the Oxford and Cambridge system is reformed. Um, whereas the Scottish universities are clearly educating a professional, what we would think of as middle class, long mm. before that becomes yeah. an issue in... In England, so there may there may really be a difference there between England and Scotland. And the whole point of generalist education, yes, it's a general, is it, you know, yeah. suits you, prepares you suits for anything. Suits you for, for commerce yeah. or for, you go on to specialise yeah, after, after university, yeah. but, which uh, again yeah. makes mm. the fourth year mm. element quite a, yeah. an interesting yeah. one. Yeah. 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 That, that is interesting. But you know, whatever whatever's happening, the change that's been brought, brought about, and this, these new chairs are they're, they're lacking they're 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 lacking in self they're not secure at all. Mm. I think I found that very interesting just researching this paper how how awkward. Uh, uncomfortable Nicol feels about this and just the fact that he keeps applying for you know for older chairs for chairs in logic and metaphysics yeah. English is something new and a bit strange and that clearly was and that may have been partly an Oxonian kind of yeah. uh, that was clearly the, the way that people thought in Oxford and Cambridge but yes. um, well also the fact that it the course gets fixed mm. as a fourth year course means yeah. that it's not a course that absolutely everybody has because yeah. not every I mean people stop at, at three years yeah. quite often so. of course, course. Yeah. so so, yeah, so he probably felt he was only getting you know a part of the student part experience. Of, that's right. Although they all complain about it, and tra- terrible. I mean, we all we all all of us understand this today. <laughs> but the workload seems to have been absolutely crippling. You know, <laughs> physically and mentally exhausting. Yes. Diet of lecturing. Yes. Um, Just a point of information mm-hmm. and then a question. He gave 160 lectures a year or something like that. I think you said. Do those actual lectures exist in some form of his notes or student notes, or how do we know? That's that? that's a, that's. A, um, I was hoping no one would ask me that because uh, <laughs> yes, there are some there are some student notes in Glasgow special collections. Uh, I haven't had time to look at them, but I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the question, slightly completely separate. Mm. The, Oxford Chair of Poetry. Where, yeah. where, when does that start? Yeah, that's, where, where does that fit in, if, if anywhere? Yeah. Actually, he, Nicol does mention the Oxford Poetry Chairs in his inaugural lecture as one of the other chairs that his new chair is very different from. Mm. Um, and that goes back to, I think, uh, is it spent? It's 1720s, I so, think. Yes, it's uh, yeah. uh, endowed. In, um, and of course, the lecture is very different, though, from this kind of chair because it's, uh, the lectures are given in Latin. Um, and there are there are people like Wharton who hold mm, the chair, and um, it's quite a distinguished. Um, and of course, Arnold himself is, is uh, near the time is, is professor of poetry. 
but I'd, presumably by Arnold's time they were lecture they were they were lecture they were lecturing in English. They were lecturing yeah, in English yeah. by then. Yeah. Yeah. He was, the was he the first lecturer in English? Right. Yeah. 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 But it's a very different type of. Um, well, it's, it's like the it's like the Oxford Chair of Poetry today. In fact, not much has changed. <laughs> you give a whole set of, a set of lectures on poetry, but it's not doesn't have the same pedagogic mission as as a, as a chair like like the chairs at UCL or Kings or London or Edinburgh, Glasgow, or Aberdeen or whatever. Yes, it's, it's yeah. more like a, a sort of public set piece rather than Absolutely, that, yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm not sure, I didn't manage to find out about because um, Nicol doesn't refer to Belfast. I don't know, does anyone know when the English chair at Belfast is, is established? Because it must have been before Glasgow. 40s, 1840s. 1840s, is it, right? Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And they call, they're calling it English right. at, 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 time, at, yeah. at Belfast. Yeah. Of course, that's the chair that Gregory Smith holds, yes. isn't it? Where he, de- yeah. where he develops his theory of Caledonian yeah. Magistrates yeah. in, <laughs> in Belfast. Yeah. Yes. Mm. One of the things that seems to me has been a, a bit of a bugbear in this history of the institutional nature of, of mm. the subject is, is just the term belles yeah. because it has acquired such negative and pejorative mm. connotations mm. that people forget that, it, in fact, it's borrowed from a rather precise French designation, which is is part of that um, Paul Royal uh, rhetoric. So, so, I mean, they actually... He means something, not just the chatter about Shelley or the... Yeah. Uh, mm. uh, that wonderful phrase <laughs> that mm. you quoted. Of, uh, I mean, the impressionistic yeah. sense that has become by... The, the Gilmore Hill Baroque. The Gilmore yes. Hill Baroque, which, <laughs> yes, that's a great phrase. That's right. Um, that... that Belle Lettres has has a sort of uh, a heft to it when mm. Blair is using it mm. that actually really carries a certain mm. amount of cultural authority in itself. I mean, simply yeah. using something which is a rather, rather rigorous French tradition, uh, and and that that gets lost in the course of the nineteenth century. And in, I mean, I, I think, um, well, Crawford. Dates the chain, the change in the title of the chair to 1858, but yeah. I, I think it might be 1860. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But it's actually changed. But Aiton is mooting it mm. from the the time that he takes over, um, because he clearly felt feels that the currency of, of Belle Lettres has become a big yeah. base by so then. I mean, so I mean the Napoleonic Wars probably did a lot to, yeah, to do did, it in. Did, um, yes, uh, that's right. It wasn't just Coleridge and, and the, yes. the Franco, Francophobia that you know sweeps uh, mm. um, British criticism in the, in the Romantic mm. period. But a bit, actually, a bit like um, the awkwardness around German philology after the Great War yes. uh, in yes. Britain, in British universities, the need to dis, 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 disarticulate the development of English literature from German philology, because that's seen as very unpatriotic. You know, after, 19, after 1918, you don't want you don't want to touch German. Mm. Um, yeah. Although there are people like Gilbert Murray who work very hard to try to um, to redeem German, to yes. keep to, to not to disarticulate German, the German intellectual tradition, German philosophy, and, and, and classics from. From you know the, um, the Kaiser Bill and the mm, you know, yeah. culture camp and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so so again, these external, these big wars, you know, and the, and the realignment between France and, and Germany are, are, are really very interesting indeed. Um, I mean, Nickel goes to France a lot. He's you know he's quite friendly. He likes to travel in France, but um, he doesn't seem to be a strong French kind of connection. There is a strong. He's very well read in German German literature. Um, Do you know anything about how well um, Nichols Unionist and, and, and mm. thinking in terms of the, um, the, the support of yeah. the northern side and the Union mm. in the Civil War goes down in Glasgow because Glasgow, like Liverpool, is, is I mean they're the two places that 
that actually uh, suffer most from the embargo on the Scottish, the um, southern uh, tobacco and then uh, cotton in, in the Civil War. So, in a sense, the, the Civil War is, is most unpopular, or the Northerners are uh, most well, unpopular in, in the West Coast sure. supports. I'm sure Andrew knows a lot more yeah. about this than I do, but there, I mean, there's a strong support for the Confederacy in Glasgow. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's was, right. There was certainly support for the South in the cotton manufacturing areas, Lancashire, yeah, yeah. Liverpool, and there was some support in Glasgow because it was very specific that um, uh, the professor himself chose to speak out in public. There were public meetings in Glasgow, you know, defending the union side <coughs> in an attempt to answer right. this tendency towards southern sympathy. So there must have been at least... Yes, it, I mean, it's, it's a, a strong position to have taken, yeah. Yes. yeah. So the supporters would have been the, the merchant and business community in Glasgow? Yes, presumably, then. Yeah. largely, largely, Because yes. yes. there is a sense that nickel is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's against the very much against the grain to be supporting the union, you know, and to, to be giving public lectures on, mm -hmm. you know, uh, abolitionist lectures or, or, or support, supporting the, the union in Glasgow at that point. Uh, and he does say he goes to, when he goes to America, he says, he said, if someone would offer me a job in Harvard, I'd jump he at it. Also, <laughs> he, he went to Boston yeah. and was very impressed by the sort of cultural life in yeah. Boston and says specifically that he would be very interested in obtaining an appointment. <laughs> but he has Let to write be known, to Peter Book <laughs> before being in a position to do that. But he obviously really was very struck by Harvard and the Harvard world in Boston. He was offered a chair in India as well, um, uh, which he did turn down, and also New Zealand. So these, these big chairs were really, there were a lot of, um, they were trying to set up new departments of English across the empire. And so if you had a chair, you were always being approached by people from, you know, from India or New Zealand or Australia, or whatever, to try and come and um, come and. Uh, I wonder if Court had even read the history of American mm -hmm. literature, mm -hmm. yeah, I given the kind of comments that yeah. you're, you know, yeah. that you bring out about the arch conservative and yeah. so on. It makes no sense yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. The history of American literature is a sort of eulogy yeah. of American democracy. That's why the Civil War is so important, because the real America has re-emerged, defeated slavery, defeated the South, and we're back to this democratic ideal almost, which he himself feels so committed to. I think he's probably read bits, he's dipped into the end of Knight's biography of Nicol and he's read the last chapter and, and just the last, yes, but he's become a bit, you know, he's, come a, he's become a bit of a liberal unit. Very liberal, if not radical, and you, you know, to say those things, you have to ignore that 1888 pamphlet on Scottish university reform, which is a huge attack on the Tory government and is defence of the generalists. And you know, obviously George Davy hadn't read it either, <laughs> because that it really does misrepresent Nicholl's position that Nicholl was really defending. Right. Uh, he did seem to have come. He believed that there should be an honours course in in English. Yes. But only if it could be articulated only with history. If history yeah, was available. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that is quite interesting, yeah. that his whole approach to literature was a historicist one, yeah. quite strongly. So he could only understand American literature yeah. if you understood the nature of American society. Yeah. That's what he is basically arguing throughout his book. I think, it, to answer, go back to Bill's point, I think the lectures do, um, they are very much segmented, they are some histories of 
historical surveys of, 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 of English literature. And that's how they're kind of organized. He gives a good sketch for that in the inaugural lecture as well. And I assume that, and Masson um, similarly, but Court quotes somebody saying that Masson always seemed to stop with, he never got further than Milton, you know, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that nearly all his interests, his interest, and I believe the Masson chair here is now early, early yeah. is, is medieval or early, or so early modern. Or, early yeah, 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 which is quite appropriate, but yeah. of course Masson also does his De Quincey uh, yes. and writes a lot about, about contemporary, yeah. about 19th century literature. I mean, Nichols got an interesting connection too with a, with a group of poets called the Spasmodics. You know, uh, people like Alexander Smith and and um, fairly minor, you know, um, um, uh, Sidney Dobell as well, who, yeah. Dobell, who I know nothing at all about. But he's and his own poetry, I think, is a bit influenced by that. Mm. But, uh, um, and then the Swinburne connection is very, very fascinating mm. too. Yeah. Um, but I must say, I haven't really ploughed through much of his poetry. I've read some of the shorter pieces, but. But that does seem a, it does seem it's a point that Robert Crawford makes that, that nearly all these professors do do creative writing as well. They do they do, they, they do poetry and uh, I mean Aiton is one example. Um, I think Masson writes poetry as well. Or well, and part of what rhetoric about yeah, is about, composition. About composition, yeah. Although I think that stops with Bradley and Raleigh. I don't yes. think either of them are. I mean, I, I, I think there is a there is the big change seems to come in. Certainly in Glasgow with, with Bradley, mm, yeah. not with Nicholl. Mm. Despite his, you know, in a sense he's the John the Baptist, he's, he's <laughs> heralding a, a change, but mm. it's, it's Bradley who brings in the real, really, real, real difference. Mm. Ironically, given that, you know, the, 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 the honours, well, the honours courses, the honours classes mm. created under Bradley's um, period as, as Regis Professor. Mm. Um, I mean, Philip Hobsbawm sees it as a real downward turn. He sees that it all goes down sort of pear-shaped uh, for about 20, 30 years. And Walter Raleigh, doesn't do much good, and um, it's saved by Peter Alexander, you know, who puts it back on the rails. Um, <laughs> it's been going uphill ever since. <laughs> just to say. Well, I think that's a, a good objective note on that, to, to uh, thank Nigel for it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.